Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you and good evening and welcome to this ISAS 2018 and Sydney Ideas Joint Public Lecture. Uh, my name is Anthony Podbasek. I work at the Charles Perkins Centre and I am an associate of the Sydney School of Veterinary Science. Uh, before I proceed, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, May we also pay respect to the, uh, and, and acknowledge the, um, sorry, to pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. As I mentioned, this is a joint talk today between, with ISAS 2018, which stands for the International Society for Anthrozoology. Anthrozoologists study the interaction between people and animals. Uh, and it covers many different disciplines, such as um, anthropology, sociology, psychology, medicine, veterinary medicine, philosophy, history, etc. So there are many different disciplines that can be involved in this field. And um, today we have a lot of our audience are people who are attending the conference, which is at the Charles Perkins Center this week, which runs, goes into full swing tomorrow, uh, Tuesday to Thursday. We do have a large group of scholars working here at Sydney University in this field. So we have, um, for instance, at the Charles Perkins Centre, we have the uh, dogs and human, uh, dog owners and human health uh, group, or NODE as we call them. And uh, the University of Sydney has a large network of academics who study human-animal interaction or are interested in it, and that's called the Human-Animal Research Network. Uh, I'd also just like to take this time to quickly acknowledge my, I'm one of the co-organizers for the conference that's starting here, uh, but also to acknowledge my co-organizers, uh, that's Dr. Pauline Bennett and Dr. Brad Smith, and they're somewhere in the audience, but I can't tell. Oh, there they are. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. Uh, thanks so much for your help, because we've been a great team, and, and you've been great. And thank you to all the volunteers who have worked out really hard today to bring things together. So thank you very much. Everyone's in a, a blue hoodie, if you don't know, notice the difference there. Uh, so thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank Sydney Ideas, Ira Ferris and Anna Burns for coordinating this with us. It's a great way to talk about this topic tonight publicly. So thank you to Sydney Ideas. And also to the major sponsors, uh, sponsors that you'll see up on the screen for the conference, uh, such as Mars Waltham, which, who are the major, our platinum sponsor for the conference. Okay, so now over to our speaker and the reason why you're here tonight. I'd like to introduce Dr. Sandra Barker. Sandra is a professor of psychiatry and is Bill Balaban Endowed Chair in Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University and in the United States, where she serves as the director of the School of Medicine uh, Center for Human-Animal Interaction, and she's also an affiliate scientist in the Center for Biobehavioral Clinical Research. And at, uh, as director, uh, Sandy uh, oversees an evidence-based therapy dog program called Dogs on Call. Dr. Barker has extensive teaching and clinical experience in treating uh, trauma survivors, providing and evaluating animal-assisted interventions, 
and directing and providing a pet loss counselling service. And that's at Virginia, Maryland Regional College at, uh, of, of Veterinary Medicine. She's internationally recognised uh, for her research on the health uh, benefits of interacting with companion animals and her re research program spans over 25 years. So we're very delighted to have Sandy here, Dr. Sandra Barker, and we welcome to, uh, you up to the podium, Sandy, to talk about dogs, helping people in families, hospitals, colleges, and at work. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for that very kind introduction. And it's such a pleasure to be here on this beautiful campus at the University of Sydney. I also want to recognize the Eora Nation. And as we begin our wonderful, exciting conference, it's just a thrill to be here with all of you. And as I talk about some of the research supporting how dogs help people, Many of the top researchers doing this work are in this room. So at the reception, please talk with some of the researchers and pick their brains, so to speak. So let's look at how we're going to spend our time together today. And the first thing we'll be doing is talking about the special place pets have in our families. How many of you are pet owners? Consider yourself pet owners. Now we're in the past. I'd say that's probably the good majority of people. Um, those of you who do not may reconsider by the end of the presentation today. So we'll start talking about the special place that dogs have in our families. And then I'll be talking about a model hospital program. Anthony mentioned our Dogs on Call program at Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center, and I'll be talking about that. And then we'll spend some time talking about therapy dogs on college campuses. You've all seen media attention about dogs coming on campus to help students during stressful times. Well, I think all the time you're a student are stressful times pretty much. Would you agree with me, students? It's pretty, pretty stressful. And then I'll also talk about dogs at work and how they help employees and how they help the organization. So, you ready? All right, let's begin. And the first thing I want to make sure as we begin to talk about pets and our families that everyone received a blank piece of paper when you came in. Did anyone not receive a blank piece of paper? So we're going to start by looking at our families, i.e. your families. So on this piece of paper, I want you to draw a large circle on the center of the page. And this circle represents a family, your family. So make a circle, draw a circle, center of the page. Everybody got that? Just a circle. Circle represents a family. Okay, now also using the symbol of a circle, draw yourself wherever you belong and label it me. So also using the symbol of a circle, draw yourself wherever you belong, anywhere on the page, and label it me. Anyone having trouble with the instructions so far? Nah, figured you wouldn't. Okay, now also using the symbol of a circle, place your family members where they belong anywhere on the page. You don't need to label them. This is for you. We're not going to do that horrible thing like change papers or turn them in. So this is for you. So also using the symbol of a circle, place your family members where they belong anywhere on the page. Okay, now if you haven't already, you also using the symbol of a circle, I want you to place your pet, favorite pet, 
Now, I know some of you are saying all of mine are favorites, and that's fine. Make, draw one circle that represents all of your favorite pets. So, also using the symbol of a circle, if you have pets, place your favorite pet wherever it belongs on the place and just label it with an X. Okay, so now consider this. Physical distance on that diagram has been shown to reflect emotional distance in many studies. Physical distance on the diagram has been shown to reflect emotional distance. So those people and pets that you place closer to yourself on the diagram would be those that you are the most emotionally close to. I hear some laughter. Ah, you may think that you're, looks a little strange, but consider where your pet is in relationship to your family members. Now, you don't have to say anything or share, but just look where that pet is placed in regards to your other family members. So how do you compare with others? Multiple studies found people were as close to their pets, particularly dogs, as to their closest family member, whether it was a spouse or a child or a parent. As close to their pet as to their closest family member. And these have been a number of studies. A study of dog owners in the U.S. and Canada. Dogs were placed as close as the closest family member. And in a third of those, the dog was closer than any human family member. Now, you may think about, well, why would that be true? But those of you who are pet owners have multiple reasons why that's true. So also in a study of hospitalized children with dogs at home, these children were as close emotionally to their dogs as to their closest family members. Similarly, college students, and with the college students, 43% were closer to the dog than to any human family member. 43%. Now think about that. Students go away to college. What's left at home? The pet. So not only are they missing their human supports when they enter college, many of them, they're also missing their pets. And how does that contribute to their sense of isolation, their sense of homesickness, the anxiety that they feel as they matriculate to college? So important to think about how close college students are. And then adult survivors of childhood abuse, closer to the childhood pet than any human family member. Pretty remarkable for a number of these survivors. So we know that people are very close to their pets emotionally. So some studies have associated pet ownership, and like I mentioned, a number of these researchers are in this room. Some studies have associated pet ownership with reduced cardiovascular disease risk. And there's been such a preponderance of really good studies that the American Heart Association published a white paper in the journal Hypertension, a very prestigious journal. And basically what they did was they reviewed all of the studies that had been done up to that time looking at pet ownership and cardiovascular disease risk. And they concluded that pet ownership is associated with lower cardiovascular disease risk, particularly dog ownership. And they actually also added that it may be positive factor. So again, those of you who don't have pets, I'm just saying, may want to think about that. 
lower cardiovascular disease risk. Also, lower physiological and self-reported levels of stress. So there have been studies that have been looking at oxytocin, looking at the stress hormone cortisol, and also finding indicators of lower physiological stress with not only pet ownership but animal-assisted interventions. Increased physical exercise, including a study in Australia that found that there was an average of one hour extra physical activity for pet owners that it were, was not seen in those who didn't own pets. So pet owners being more physically active, and we know that's a healthy thing to do. And some studies suggesting that less obesity among pet owners. So a number of positive things. More positive moves. Just feel better. You know, dogs, cats, they do silly things. It makes us laugh, makes us smile, makes us feel better. And better quality of life. A number of studies, including some done in Australia, showing fewer doctor visits for individuals who own pets. And more social and community engagement, also very important. It's hard to walk a dog outside and not be talking with people because people are always coming up and asking you about your dog or they're petting your dog. So we know there's more social interaction and dogs uh, have been called social lubricants for that reason. Important to note, however, in spite of what you may read in the press, not all studies have positive findings. Lots of studies, we're in this whole wonderful field of anthrozoology, we're in our adolescence, and so we need a lot more research being done, but we're not all looking at the same populations, we're not all looking at the same outcomes, we're not all all measuring things the same way. So not all studies do find benefits, but we, see, do, we do see accumulating evidence in these areas. Important when we talk about dogs helping people, I'm going to be primarily focusing on therapy dogs, and we've talked about pet ownership, but important to make some distinctions between pet dogs, services and assistance dogs, facility dogs, emotional support dogs, and therapy dogs. With all of these terms, it gets confusing. So important to distinguish between them. Service and assistance dogs are legally defined and protected. Now those legal protections and definitions vary a little bit depending upon the country you may be in. So for example, in Australia, they're legally defined and protected under the Federal Disability Discrimination Act of 1992. In the UK, the Equality Act, of 2010, and in the U.S., the Americans with Disabilities Act of 2010. So if you're interested in how these service assistance dogs are defined and how they're protective in any of these countries, you would need to refer to that country's legislation. But there's pretty much agreement in terms of defining service and assistance dogs across countries that these are animals that are individually trained to perform specific tasks for a person with a disability. And these are working animals. They're trained to do tasks for someone with a disability. They aren't considered pets. And they have a legal right to enter public places such as hospitals and restaurants and libraries and airports and other public places. In the U.S., however, service dogs are limited in terms of species to dogs and miniature horses but you don't see that limitation in other countries, which is why it's important to look at that particular country's definitions. 
So in addition to service and assistance dogs, which we know help people in multiple, multiple ways, we also have facility dogs, and they're different. They are not service dogs. They're partnered with a working professional to improve the physical and emotional health of individuals who are under that professional's care. So if I have a facility dog and bringing it to our inpatient psychiatry unit, I am bringing that dog to help those patients on that particular unit and the dog has been trained to work on that particular unit. They respond to basic obedience and skilled task commands that are appropriate for that particular setting and they complement other therapies like therapeutic recreation and occupational therapy and psychotherapy. They're typically on that unit as long as I am. And so they're there every day, but they also would go home with that working professional and then they're off service, so to speak. They're legally protected in the United States only under one condition and that's only if they're working with a client. So I can't take a facility dog into a public place and be legally protected, but if I'm working with my client with that, with that facility dog, I can. So a little technicality there, but an important one. So we have three facility dogs in our Dogs on Call program. The first one, Bahia, works at our Virginia Treatment Center for Children. This is a psychiatric facility for adolescents and children and our senior nurse clinician, Tess Searles, went to be trained with Bahia. All three of our facility dogs were trained by Canine Companions for Independence. So the owners had to apply for a facility dog and then they went up and they trained for two weeks and were matched with a dog. And so Bahia was specifically fit for working in this treatment facility for children and adolescents. And one thing that among many that Bahia does because she's very popular with the children is she kind of knows when they're getting ramped up and she helps to downregulate them. And one of the ways she does that is the children know that if they become boisterous, she turns her head to the side. The kids don't want her to turn her head to the side. They want her interacting with them and so they'll start talking about using their inside voice. So the dog, by her behavior, helps the, the, the children in many ways. Rennie is on our palliative care unit. She is also owned by one of our advanced nurse clinicians. She helps our terminally ill patients, our patients who are also having medication management difficulties. And she also helps tremendously with the families who are preparing for the death of a loved one. And then we have Bryn the Third, and Bryn the Third is on our adult psychiatry inpatient unit. And Bryn comes primarily in the morning when the patients seem a little more agitated and specifically goes on those particular units where we have patients who have psychotic disorders, and she has a tremendously calming effect on those patients. So three facility dogs, examples from our facility. Emotional support dogs, lots of confusion in the U.S. particularly. I don't know about in Australia, but a lot of confusion about emotional support dogs and people think they're service dogs and they are not. Emotional support dogs are companion animals that provide comfort to individuals 
with a psychological or a physical health challenge. And they may provide companionship, they may reduce loneliness, they may help with anxiety and depression, emotional support dogs. No special training required. Unlike your service dogs who are trained to form specific, perform specific tasks for someone with a disability, no special training is required for emotional support dogs. In the U.S., they do have some legal protection under the Fair Housing Act. Landlords who are receiving federal funds must consider an emotional support dog as a reasonable accommodation for a disability. The same with our Department of Transportation. However, they can require documentation, and some of them do, and the more problems that have happened, we've had some dog bites and things like that happen with emotional support dogs in airplanes, and they can require documentation, and more of them are. Typically, they require a healthcare professional who's treating that patient to write a letter on their letterhead saying, this animal is required for this person to travel or is needed on the other uh, end of their travel arrangements. But they may ask for documentation. In Australia, they don't have legal protection, emotional support dogs. But they may be permitted in some housing. So big difference between emotional support dogs and service dogs. Therapy dogs, very helpful, very therapeutic, no legal protection. Okay, therapy dogs are trained dogs meeting behavior and temperament criteria for appropriateness to participate in various types of animal-assisted interventions. And we use animal-assisted interventions as a broad term to cover animal-assisted therapy and animal-assisted activities and animal-assisted education. And they basically describe how we use animals in a variety of ways to benefit humans. And so when we're talking about animal-assisted therapy, it might be when I bring my dog onto the psychiatric unit and the psychiatrist says, you know, we got a patient over here, Susie, and she's isolating and she won't come out of her room. Can you help? So go in with this cute little fluffy dog and say, Susie, do you want to walk with me down the hall with H.I.? Well, of course she does. So takes one leash, I have the other leash, and go down the hall. And what happens? If she starts walking down the hall, other patients start talking to her. She starts talking to them. They start talking to the dog. She starts talking to the dog. And then they usually say, can I have him? Uh, no, we don't allow that. So, so animal-assisted therapy is really important. It's, typically, it's a healthcare professional who's incorporating a therapy animal who's trained a therapy animal into a patient's treatment care plan. So I'd be writing a note afterwards indicating what I did, how the patient responded. Unlike animal-assisted education, which is more when you're seeing therapy dogs, you've probably seen the examples of therapy dogs helping children read who have difficulty reading. That type is an example of animal-assisted education. Most of what we see in hospitals and in nursing home visits are animal-assisted activities. Now, does that mean it's not a therapeutic interaction? No, because they are very therapeutic. But it's not typically therapy in terms of a healthcare professional incorporating the dog into a treatment care plan. So a lot of it is visitation. It might be doing tricks. 
but in other ways providing a distraction, a calming, a wonderful, um, enjoyable experience for patients. And as I mentioned, no legal protection. So I want to focus a little bit on about dogs helping people in hospitals, and I'll be talking about therapy dogs. Let me tell you about Casey, the patient in this photo. Casey was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of three. So Casey underwent eight months of grueling chemotherapy. And as the chemotherapy was killing the cancer in his bloodstream, it was also sapping Casey. And his mom will tell you he regressed. He regressed to about a one-year-old. He would not sit up. He forgot his letters, his numbers, his colors. And then Peanut came into the room. And Peanut started visiting Casey every Friday while he was undergoing treatment. And Casey's mom will tell you that Peanut helped Casey turn the corner to recovery. It's the only way he would sit up when Peanut came into the room. He wouldn't sit up for anything else. He started talking and petting, as you can see, playing with this cup, putting it on Peanut's head and having a good time. Casey is a wonderful success story in that five years later he's cancer-free and he's a healthy, active young boy playing baseball, but he still has Peanut's picture on his refrigerator. So powerful, powerful impact that this one dog had on this one child. So I'm going to share with you our model hospital therapy dog program, Dogs on Call. And why do I say it's a model? Because we have an evidence base behind it. We've done numerous studies showing that this program is effective in reducing anxiety in our patients, fear in our patients, improving mood, lessening pain. And it's also standardized. The program's over 18 years old. There's a manual. And we know that any of the teams coming in the hospital are following the same procedures with some variation. For instance, we have a few additional standards for visiting in pediatrics because as you're going through pediatrics, you may come across a tricycle racing down the hall or a, a wagon filled with kids and toys. So it's a program of the, the Center for Human-Animal Interaction in the School of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University. And our mission is improved health and well-being through human-animal interaction. And we accomplish that mission through clinical research and educational activities. So just to give you a little bit of a foundation, the center is a 5013C, a nonprofit in um, the United States. And it was founded in 2001 in the School of Medicine, the only center of its kind in the School of Medicine in the US. And we offer a number of educational activities that we consider very important. So our medical student electives and our psychiatry resident educational opportunities. We're showing and training this next generation of healthcare professionals about the power of human-animal interaction. They follow these dogs on call teams. They watch and observe. They interview patients afterwards and find out about that interaction. And they do reports and studies and presentations. We also do internships. We have a number of psychology students, social work interns that, that spend some time with us and then doing presentations from public presentations, professional presentations, trying to increase awareness of the benefits of interacting with companion animals. 
Our clinical activities, dogs on call, that I'm going to focus the most on is our most visible because that's our therapy dog program. But we also participate in a number of university events. I'll be talking about a de-stress event we do for our students. But we're also asked to participate during Sexual Assault Awareness Week, doing Suicide Prevention Week as we're talking with students and we're bringing the dogs in, providing comfort for students. And then also there's our interdisciplinary research that I'll be summarizing as well. So what I want to do is show you a brief nine-minute video that really gives you a feeling for the power of these um, interactions with the therapy dogs. As an academic health science center, we are in high-intensity operation, 24-7, 365, tertiary services. Uh, it is a dynamic place with literally thousands of people coursing through our hallways every day. It's into this environment that we introduce uh, our Dogs on Call program. While we are sophisticated and high-tech, we also need to be high-touch. And I think that the Dogs on Call program brings a wonderful dimension to the care we provide. Uh, and whether it's in, in, in the patient rooms or just greeting one of our canine volunteers as they walk down the hallway, it really is a wonderful, wonderful dimension in addition to the care we provide. The Dogs on Call is a program of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction, which is a center in the School of Medicine, the only one of its kind in the country established in the School of Medicine. Many of the dogs in our Dogs on Call program are rescue dogs, and so the owners have rescued these dogs from perhaps terrible situations, and then they invest this time, this love, this patience in helping these dogs gain physical and mental health, and then even further training to become therapy dogs, and then they want to give back, and they come here and they share these wonderful dogs with our patients, and so they're giving back, improving the healing process for our patients. That accident happened at a little after 12, and by 1 o'clock I was in the operating room. I laid in the bed, paralyzed, for two weeks, and I heard people saying she doesn't have a 10% chance. And then I felt a nose on my hand and I looked down and there was a beautiful dog and he was looking up at me with curiosity and that touch opened the window I had purpose without Wrigley's nose I probably would have stayed in my head and not come out. The reaction to the Dogs on Call program in our rehab department has been phenomenal. The, from the patients, from the family, from the staff, when a dog and their handler enters the unit, something magical will happen that day. Our staff knew that Carol was a dog lover. At the time she came to the rehabilitation unit recovering from her stroke, um, she was still having problems with aphasia, problems expressing herself, expressing words and, and, 
in understandable ways. But when a dog came into the room, her face lit up. She uh, got so excited, she, even her posture changed in that regard. And she would spend the longest time with the dog and the handler in that time. And it was such a special relationship. She got visit after visit after visit, just because her care team knew to look for when the dogs on call volunteers were on the floor. They knew, oh, you need to come visit Carol. Carol loves dogs. And, uh, and she gave that love back, and it just became part of her, her rehabilitation visit. I would um, train my dog and be a volunteer if I could, um, because I know the place I've been, and it's not a good place. It's not a good place. If it hadn't been for Wrigley, I would still be locked in, I think. But I would recommend highly that every facility get a drug program started. So as I talk about some of the studies that have been done, and I talk about we're finding more information showing the reduced cardiovascular disease risk. What those numbers don't show you is this. The power that a single dog can have on a single person. And I think sometimes we get so focused on the numbers that we forget about some of the people that are so deeply affected and benefit from these therapy dog visits. So a little bit about the requirements, at least for our program, in being in an acute care hospital. We require that before a, a dog and handler, therapy dog and handler team are part of our program, that they are first registered as a therapy dog team with one of two nationally in the U.S. recognized therapy dog registration organizations, pet partners, or Alliance of Therapy Dogs. And that gives that external credibility that we know these dogs have been trained, they've been evaluated for appropriate health and temperament and behavior. And so we know once we have that baseline, then we can work further in terms of having that human end of the leash complete the volunteer training in the hospital so we know they've had their TB test and their flu shot, and they know about HIPAA and confidentiality and what's appropriate in the hospital and what to do if there's an adverse event. And then we also have them complete our dogs on call orientation, and that requires them to come in and follow an experienced team. We're in a big medical center, and so it's important for them to not only see the layout, but where is it that they and their dog are going to feel most comfortable? You know, some people are not comfortable visiting terminally ill children or sick children. Others aren't comfortable visiting our uh, secure care unit where we have our prisoners that are receiving treatment. So it's important to be able to find not only a place that the dogs feel most comfortable, but that the volunteer feels comfortable as well. So once they get the layout and they see from an experienced person um, what's appropriate, then they're followed with their dogs. So we get another look when they're in our facility of how that dog is behaving and how the human and the dog communicate. Because we want to make sure that dog is always 
looking to the owner for guidance and we want to make sure that that volunteer is always paying attention to that dog noticing if there's any sign of stress or the dog's uncomfortable and then they know immediately what to do if that should occur. And of course we have our own medical center policies and procedures for therapy dogs in the facility and so we want to make sure they're following those procedures and then they're compliant with our program manual that we provide for them so that we have the standardized program. So where do the dogs visit? Just about everywhere throughout the facility, except patients who are on contact precautions or in a sterile environment, unless physician approval is documented. And occasionally, we do have physicians who say, you know, the benefits far outweigh the risk for this patient. I want the dog visit. But when that occurs, of course, we need that in writing the patient's chart. So patients who have active infections, those who have IVs, those who have open wounds, same thing. They don't visit unless the physician documentation is in the chart. Obviously, we can't go in the operating room. <clears throat> but we do have physicians call and say, you know, I've got a special needs child here and he's terrified about dental surgery. Can you come and help? and the dog will be with the patient in pre-op and with him right to the door of the operating suite. And we have found that that really has been helpful in calming patients and helping them reduce the anxiety that they have about a major uh, surgery procedure they're going to have. The one place the dogs want to go, they can't go. <laughs> the cafeteria and the dining rooms, not allowed. And obviously, they don't visit people who have dog fears or allergies and patients who do not consent to the visit, even if the physicians requested the visit, even if the nurses, when we come up to the unit, say, yes, so-and-so is good for a visit, always ask at the door because patient conditions change, and they sometimes change very quickly. So important to get that consent again. And of course, if there's a roommate in the room, got to make sure it's okay with that roommate too. So... What do 370 patients say about their dogs on call visit? This is a survey that's been done by our medical students who are doing electives with us. And one of the questions asked was, was the visit helpful? 99% said it was helpful. Now we wonder, who is this guy <laughs> who said no? Well, the medical student got that answer, probed a little bit. And the guy said, well, I got a dog at home and I'm being discharged today. So we thought, all right, we'll give you a pass on that. So if the visit was helpful, we wanted to know, well, how was it helpful? And this was pretty amazing to us. 86% said they felt more relaxed after a visit. And some of these visits are pretty brief, maybe five minutes or so. Over 33% less fearful. 90% it improved my mood. 60% less lonely, almost 60% less anxious. And look at this over a third, less pain after five, ten minutes with a dog. What medication is going to do that with no side effects? Pretty amazing. And then other, uh, other ways that people listed that it was helpful. So this was 369 responding. So in terms of... How likely are you to request a visit? 92%, very likely. Then we had 7%, somewhat likely. We wondered about these couple. 
They were being discharged. They were going home. So they were not going to request an additional visit. So these are positive findings for us that, of course, we share with our medical leadership because it's all about patient satisfaction these days in hospitals. We want to make sure patients are satisfied. So they know that our therapy dogs are helping them get that patient satisfaction data that's very positive. Well, as we observe the therapy dogs interacting with our patients, what we learn from those interactions is what guides our research. So as we're observing patients feeling more calm, as we're observing our medical staff interacting with the dogs, that helps us decide where we want to focus our research, where we want to collect some data to see. Is it just a smile or is it something more than that? And then based on the results of our research, that helps us to establish the efficacy of our program. Gives us great information in terms of what works, what doesn't work, what's helpful, what's not helpful. And then that helps inform our education, enriches it, not only with our medical students, but in presentations like this when we can share with you what we're finding. And then it also helps us to improve our program. So it's a wonderful cycle that involves the the clinical, the research, and the education all working together in this cycle. So, what have we learned from our research? Well, we started out with looking at the effect of our therapy dogs on our psychiatry patients because that's where I was housed, and I knew my director would say yes if I said I want to do a study looking at therapy dogs. Well, it's a study. We're an academic medical center. Well, yeah, you can do a study. It's going to be therapy dogs. Oh, okay, be therapy dogs. So we started doing some studies with our psychiatry patients, and the first thing we looked at was whether we involved a therapy dog in our traditional therapeutic recreation, whether that would make a difference in terms of their anxiety. So we compared them in a traditional therapeutic recreation setting and compared that with interacting with a therapy dog in a group setting, similar to the therapeutic recreation. And what we found was the anxiety levels were significantly reduced in the patients interacting with the therapy dog. And it was interesting because it included patients with mood disorders, anxiety significantly reduced, psychotic disorders, the anxiety levels were cut in half. 25 minutes with a therapy dog, cut in half. And then also patients with dementia, and other cognitive disorders also benefited. The one group that did not, we didn't see that decline, were those with primary substance abuse disorders. We wondered about that. We don't know for sure, but we're thinking maybe it was that acute physiological withdrawal that they were in at the time that perhaps um, they weren't sensitive to the, the therapy dog wasn't uh, creating that type of a calming, reducing the anxiety in those patients who are undergoing acute withdrawal. We then decided to look at, this is H.I., always have to include him in presentation. He's over the rainbow bridge, but he made a lot of impact on a lot of psychiatric patients over the years. He's in the ECT suite. What we would see is, for those of you not familiar with electroconvulsive therapy, it is not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Those of you who saw that movie. Um, basically, it's a very effective psychiatric treatment for profound depression and bipolar disorder, particularly for those who medications haven't helped. These are seriously, seriously um, depressed individuals. And electroconvulsive therapy, basically, an electrical current is stimulating the brain 
and is producing a seizure that, and they don't know exactly how, but it does help many, many people with profound depression, a highly effective treatment. But as you can imagine, it's a little anxiety-provoking to have electrodes placed on your head, knowing there's going to be a current running through your brain. And so patients oftentimes, because ECT is not just a one-time thing, it has a series of treatments people uh, need to go through, and so they become anxious about those treatments, and understandably so. So we decided to see whether interacting with a therapy dog, not my dog was not part of the study, they would have said I was biased, so it was a, 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 an objective of a different uh, therapy dog, and we found that fear before ECT was reduced, amazingly, 37%, 15 minutes with a therapy dog. You would see patients who were literally shaking with anxiety, and then as they pet the dog, you see them calm, you see the smiling. We would have patients before ECT profoundly depressed. The psychiatrist would come by to start treatment. The patient's on the floor playing with the dog. And people would think, hmm, and yes, this person has profound depression. The, the interaction with the dog uh, is pretty amazing. And so we found in this particular study, fear reduced by 37% and anxiety by 18%. We also did a study trying to determine whether having a therapy dog in a psychotherapy group would increase their participation, would decrease their anxiety and stress, well, what happened was patients were pretty sharp. There was a group, one part of the day that was offered with the dog, another group without the dog, same psychotherapy group. And the patients after the first day would say, is the dog at this one? Dog wasn't at that one, they wouldn't go. So we couldn't get enough data to really look at whether the fear and the anxiety were reduced between these two sessions because the patients were refusing to go. And of course, we couldn't make them go. And so what we found was significant difference. If you have a dog in a group, the patients come. If they don't, they don't. Well, if they don't come, they're not getting that helpful treatment. So it was amazing just having the dog present in the group. So what about dogs helping the hospital staff? Remember that diagram I showed you, how what we observed in the, with the dogs would drive and inform our research? Well, we observed the calming effect of the therapy dogs appeared to have on our staff. I mean, you'd see busy physician going down the hallway, busy nurse, and they see the dog, and oh, all of a sudden they're baby talking to the dog. Of course, that's what we do, right? Oh, we're so cute and fluffy, reminds me of my dog at home. And then, boom, they're up and they're off going to, to do some treatment. So we wondered if there were physiological changes also taking place. And so we did a study, and we measured the stress hormone cortisol, and we found that it was significantly reduced in our hospital staff after as little as five minutes interacting with a therapy dog. Five minutes. Physiological stress reduced. And the level of stress was equivalent to our comparison condition of 20 minutes of quiet rest. Now, you know busy nurses can't take a 20-minute nap during their shift, but they can certainly interact with a dog for five minutes. And so as this study was published, and as we, of course, shared it with our 
medical facility, of course, we started getting requests not just for patients, but for staff after critical incidents to have them come and help to uh, comfort our staff. So then we wondered, observing, gosh, our therapy dogs are here. We know they're helpful. Are they providing the same type of relief and stressful situations that you get from your own dog at home? So we thought, okay, we need to look at people interacting with their own dog after a stressful situation and see if any change we see is mirrored in that with patients interacting with a totally unknown dog, therapy dog. So we compared healthy dog owners interacting with their own therapy dog or an unfamiliar therapy dog after a mental stress task. And we measured a variety of physical stress indicators, brain waves, stress hormones, blood pressure, heart rate, as well as people's self-reported stress. And we explored the physiological patterns that we saw after the stress task, which was a computerized stress task. And so people basically came into the lab on a weekend and spent the morning with us. And for the first 30 minutes, we just measured baseline brain waves. And then they did a computerized stress task. And then they interacted with either their own or an unfamiliar therapy dog for 30 minutes. And then we monitored them for a subsequent 60 minutes while they viewed a neutral video. And this is a picture of two of our study subjects. You can see they've got their heads wrapped. They've got the 24 EEG leads on. And one of them with their own dog and one of them with an unfamiliar therapy dog. And what we found was a consistent pattern of physiological and self-reported stress after that computerized stress task. And then there was a consistent pattern of relaxation following interaction with their own dog or an unfamiliar therapy dog. And so we did see that mirror change, that mirror benefit that people got from interacting with an unknown therapy dog. And so again, more indication that those visits in the hospital for patients who are seeing a dog that they've never seen before, many of them are potentially getting a similar type of effect. So other benefits of dogs in hospitals. A number of studies have shown improved cardiovascular function in heart failure patients who were visited by a therapy dog. We see greater ambulation after orthopedic surgery. Patients that walk further and walk sooner after surgery when they have been visited by or they've been involved with the opportunity to walk with a therapy dog versus just walking in their own and encouraging them to do that. We've seen more positive feelings in hospitalized children when they've been visited by therapy dogs. We've seen lower reported pain levels in some patient populations. And we've also seen improved mood in a number of different patient populations in the hospital, increased interaction with others. We see that on our psychiatry unit a lot when the dog is present. Patients talk to each other. They talk to the staff uh, more. And greater patient satisfaction, which I mentioned is really important in hospitals having that. And faster recovery times, some studies have shown as well. But again, my caveat, not all studies find benefits of interacting with therapy dogs for 
hospitalized patients. And, and one of the studies we did with our own hospitalized children did a nice randomized control design that your hair should be done and had the dogs come in and didn't find anything. But we did find something. We found that our kids had such low levels of pain and anxiety at the beginning because they were medicated and they were receiving other treatments, there really wasn't anywhere for it to go. So again, not all these find benefits of interacting with therapy dogs for hospitalized patients. So need more studies, so researchers out there, I know you hear that all the time, you need to do more research. So have all of you seen media about dogs being brought on campuses and how it helps students and during exams and de-stressing and that sort of thing. Any of you have here that are students have dogs coming on campus that you are able to interact with? Excellent. Excellent. So we've been reading about this occurring with dogs helping college students and we hadn't seen anything uh, published about looking into researching does something really happening and so we decided to do this study and in 2013 our university counseling service actually came to us and they said, you know, we do these de-stress events for students before exams. We have pizza parties and we do yoga and things like that. And we thought it'd be good to have the dogs come over for a de-stress event. And would you be willing to help with that? So we said yes, if we could collect a little survey data. So we had a little bit of time, so it was a quick little survey. But we... Um, we did decide to participate in that. And we said, well, how many students do you usually have come to these? They said, oh, 50 to 60. So we had enough handouts and surveys for 50 to 60 people. And we wondered who was going to attend, who would find it helpful, would any of them find it helpful? This was the first time that it had been you know, done at our facility. And so we had 826 students show up. The fire marshal, you can't have this many students in here. The building inspector, there's too many students on the mezzanine, it could collapse. So all sorts of little challenges that came up during this first event, but the thing that came through loud and clear was students wanted to interact with these dogs. And so we did have to reroute them in different areas, and our poor counseling center was running off more survey copies. But what we found was that the racial and ethnic diversity of the students attending mirrored our student population. So we knew it wasn't just one certain segment coming, and we're a highly diverse university. Over 50% are non-white students at our university. A lot of international students, very diverse. And we saw that reflected in the attendees who came, although there was more female representation than in the underlying student body. Almost all of them who came reported that it reduced their stress. We did a simple pre-post and found it reduced their stress, 93%. And 95% physically touched at least one dog. So we knew they were really physically active with the dogs and weren't just standing off and observing. So we did a follow-up study, a little tighter than just the little pre-post survey, and we compared the stress levels before and after this pause for stress, cute name, um, and a comparison activity. And actually the comparison activity was that diagram you drew. With a little more to it, they had to indicate the stressors in their lives on it using symbols, and they had to 
indicate the institutions that were important in their lives on it. But that was the comparison activity. And we found a significant decrease in stress associated with that pause for stress event, but not for the comparison activity. So let me show you this graph because it shows such a, a, a nice change here when we had this solid blue line, which was those who were in the pause for stress event here. You see both these groups are pretty much similar. This was before they were either in either activity. And this was right after they completed the pause for stress activity. And then you see the stress go back up in the comparison activity. And you see the opposite here. These were the ones who were doing the comparison activity first. And then the students, when they were then involved with the dog, you see that rapid decrease, um, significant decrease in their um, stress levels. So there have been other studies also, again, some of the wonderful researchers that are here. Um, childhood pet ownership was associated with reduced distress and greater social skills in students in, in one study. And another one, interacting with therapy dogs on campus, was associated with reduced levels of homesickness and increased satisfaction with life. So maybe that, remember that 43% who were closer emotionally to their dogs than to their human family members? Maybe interacting with therapy dogs helps with that homesickness of being away from their own pets. I know when we observe the students in our facility that are interacting with the dogs, they're taking the selfies and they're texting it to their families and they're texting it to their friends. And so we know that they really are enjoying the activity. So what about dogs at work? Well, we did a Pets in the Workplace study, and this was a study that um, actually Dr. Randy Barker, who happens to be here with me, I'm pleased to say, was the lead investigator on. And what we were doing is there was a Mid-Atlantic U.S. service manufacturing company that allowed us to come in and to do a study in their facility looking at pets in the workplace because on any given day, they had 20 to 30 dogs present in the workplace. They had a policy, had been in place for years, allowing their employees to bring uh, pets to work. So they had 550 employees, but we only involved the 76 day shift employees. And we compared three groups, those who had their dogs with them at work, those who had dogs, but for whatever reason, they did not have them at work, whether maybe they were old or ill or not appropriate temperamentally. And then they had non-pet owners. And we measured their perception of their work organization, their stress level throughout the day. We assigned them pagers and we paged them four times during the day to get their stress levels and their physiological, their baseline physiological stress. And this is actually the CEO with his two dachshunds in his office. Um, regardless of whether they owned a pet or not or brought the dog to work or not, the employees in this organization scored higher on national industry norms on job satisfaction, on communication, on pay, on promotion, on benefits, rewards, operating procedures. Some of these make sense having dogs in the workplace, but again, we don't know for sure that it was because they have dogs in the workplace that they rated it higher, but interesting in this organization that has that policy that the employees rated this so high. So this shows the stress level throughout the day 
They all started out about the same. Now, the dog group, those who brought their dogs to work with them, that's this dark blue line. And you can see this has been they came into work mid-morning, mid-afternoon, and when they left for the day, stress levels lower here and kind of staying low. These are the people with their dogs at home. As the day goes on, now you wonder, are they wondering what the dog's up to as the day goes on? Are they missing their pet more? We don't know. And then you see that the no pet group was kind of in the middle there. So one of the neat things about this little study was we also had the people who brought their dogs to work not bring them on two days. And we paged them and got those readings as well. And look what a mirror it is. When they left their dogs at home, you see their stress level went up almost identically to the other group. And here you see those that um, without the dog, the days when the dog was there, you see that nice lower stress level. So it was a very interesting study. And the other interesting thing about it is this was a manufacturing company that repairs china and crystal. <laughs> and there are dogs with wagging tails. They never had a breakage by a dog, but they had by employees accidentally. But really interesting. So very popular um, place there. So other employee perceptions. Half of those with their dogs at work thought that that dog's presence was important to that productivity. And about half didn't think it made a difference. The positive comments, and there were many of them, but the most common ones that was a great bonus for employee morale having dogs there. It was a great stress relief that the dogs increased co-worker cooperation. And the few, very few concerns were and important to consider for dogs in a workplace. Dog behavior needs to be appropriate. Cleanliness needs to be certainly addressed and noise. So dogs help our hospital employees also after stressful events. We get calls to bring the dogs over. Um, after critical incidents, we have physicians who've requested the therapy dog visits for their nurses in recognition of National Nurses Day. And we have our medical center including addressing dogs on call during caregiver stress awareness days. So one of the ways that's included in the physician training about um, maintaining and managing stress is the therapy dogs. So this was a... a about a week before I came, I thought it would be interesting to share with you this uh, Facebook post from the VCU Department of Surgery, which says, Department of Surgery is feeling happy. Last Thursday, our general surgery residents got an emergency visit by VCU Dogs on Call as part of our wellness initiative program at VCU Surgery. So seeing more recognition of the benefits. But important to go beyond dogs. Right? A lot of you are cat owners. I was a cat owner growing up. Didn't know I was allergic to them until I was an adult. But everybody sneezed all the time. But courtesy of pet partners, we have a picture of llamas, of certainly a cat and a miniature horse also. And I want to make sure and recognize that certainly other species are involved and are beneficial for many populations. It's just in an acute care environment. We're limited to dogs. But we are branching out. So I think it's important for you to see our latest effort here. And we're testing the waters.
and some of this in the West River Center, we're trying to think of some novel ways to bring our mission back into the community. And we were talking about dogs on call, and he was talking about, well, wouldn't it be great if people were as familiar with sturgeons as they are with dogs? So all of a sudden, it kind of clicked, and we started talking, and thought, why not sturgeons on call? We've got therapy dogs, therapy horses. Why not therapy fish? And we've seen a steady growth in demand for our dog teams, and even though we have over 60 of them now in the hospital, we can't meet the need. So very quickly we focused on trying to build this program around this gentle giant of a fish. And we're working with fashion design students and engineering students. They've already got a prototype of a therapy animal vest that fits really closely around the fish and is able to circulate oxygenated water over the gill surfaces. With any species, we have challenges. We do the dogs at first, too. I mean, you have people who are afraid of dogs. We may have people who are afraid of a big fish. If you see the sturgeon, they aren't really cutesy. You know what they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. They've got that prehistoric thing going. They kind of look like a shark, but without the teeth and the propensity to bite people. Can even kind of turn them on their back and rub their belly and just be a very docile organism would make it ideally suited for use as a therapy fish. So those of you who happened to catch at the uh, very end of that, you saw the little smiley face. That's because this aired on uh, April Fool's Day. And yet... We had people emailing us, what a great idea. <laughs> the students thought this was going to be so cool. Um, I'm sure the veterinarians in here are shaking, thinking, in an acute care hospital having fish. But um, it was a great April Fool's joke. <laughs> so just in summary of where we've been this evening, we talked about the special place dogs having families, including taking a look at your own family. We looked at a model hospital therapy dog program and the benefits to patients and staff. We looked at therapy dogs on college campuses, helping students, and dogs at work benefiting employees and businesses. So I'd like to thank you for your attention and would like to open it up for questions or comments. Okay, yeah, we have got time for questions. We've got our volunteers with microphones. So please just wait. If you put your hand up, we'll take a microphone to you. Where is someone down here? Oh, we're all going to direct. Can I have, Sandy, can I have a sturgeon? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I'd like one. <laughs> thank you very much for your wonderful presentation. Uh, I'm curious, what are the, the theories around what is it about us as a species that responds to this completely other species? I mean, we're primates, they're canines. What, why do we have this reaction to dogs? There, there are several theories as to why one's the biophilia hypothesis, that we are um, attracted to nature, and that's one of the theories. Another uh, has to do with just the social support that animals provide. I mean, those of you who are pet owners, if you ask them, why are you so close to your pets? Why? What is it about them? What attracts you to them? 
They don't criticize us. What else? Unconditional love. I mean, where else do you get truly unconditional love in your life? Of course, from Randy. But I mean, aside from an unusual husband like that. Yes, but the, that biophilia hypothesis has, has been an important one that's been raised and talked about in terms of that affiliation. Anthony, you want to say anything about that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> good, good question. Others? Um, it's, it's interesting that you found in your research that um, therapy dogs uh, are equally good um, uh, with elderly people, I think, um, uh, compared to their own pets. Um, because there's been quite a lot of um, debate about that in recent times here in Australia, about whether um, it's unfair um, to deprive elderly people of their pets uh, and that it might be better to um, uh, transition them into um, a supported accommodation with their, their pets accompanying them. Um, have you got any thoughts about that? Because it, it probably has legal implications uh, ultimately. Right, and, and I agree. It's, um, it is so difficult when people have to be separated from their pets. Um, to go into whether it's an assisted living or a nursing home. And there have been, I mean, the, the, one of the, when I was talking about the emotional support animals and the Fair Housing Act um, in the U.S. Is, is one area where I've been called a number of times by attorneys where a landlord has tried to forbid a pay, uh, an elderly resident from having a pet and then as soon as they see the evidence, they usually settle that, and usually they are allowed to have the dogs there. But it is a tremendous problem for people, whether they're going into hospitals, whether they're going to be separated from their pets when we see how emotionally close they are. So it's not something that's just unique to Australia. There are other, um, some who have kind of, gotten the commercialism idea of, gee, if I allow pets in my um, apartment complex for seniors, then I'm going to get more income because more people are going to come. So you see both sides of that. I would hope that's because they recognize the strong bond people have with their, their pets. But then there are some who, you know, are under these myths that, you know, dogs are always dirty and they're going to be noisy and they're going to create problems. So it, it's, I don't think it's unique to Australia with that, but I'm glad to hear that they're, you know, paying attention to that. That's so important. Um, I have two questions, if that's okay. The first one is, um, your, the, the views of pets as family members, uh, as you may know, differs greatly depending on cultural background. Um, and I was wondering, have you or your team studied that with particularly non-Western cultures and what have been the results if you've done that? And the second one is, um, you've seen positive results on your studies of depression and anxiety patients. Petting a dog or petting a miniature horse, but have you compared it with petting a stuffed toy, for example, or an eyeball, a, a, a robot dog? And is there any difference? 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, the, there have been a number of studies. We haven't used a stuffed animal as a comparison in ours, but a number of other people have, and they do find a benefit of the stuffed animal, but in, in the studies I'm familiar with, there's more of a benefit for the live animal. So there have been some studies that um, have been done looking at that. And then your first, course, uh, first question about the uh, different cultures is an important one. Um, in the U.S., more homes have pets than have children. So we're really a very welcoming to pets um, nation. When the only thing that we have looked at, the only study where we have looked at that ethnic diversity was with our student population, and we did see the same representation that would come to voluntarily to engage with the therapy dogs, the students, um, it was basically the same population representation as in the entire student body. But we haven't looked specifically at cultural in other ways. But we are very sensitive to it in that um, we have a number of uh, not only patients from different countries, but physicians from different countries, and we're very aware that some of them um, have different views about dogs and cleanliness and their being in the facility. We, we are very educationally oriented about letting them know, but we're also don't force anyone to interact with a therapy dog who's not comfortable and will certainly make sure that if we're going to be on a unit and there's someone there who, for whatever reason, isn't comfortable, they know the schedule and they either schedule their shifts and times. Most of them schedule the shifts when the dogs are there, but there are some who would prefer not to be there, and, and we work with them because we certainly don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. It's a good question. Thank you. Fantastic talk. Your first video made me cry. The dog looked like my dog. Um, no. <laughs> a, a question. So I can imagine going into the hospital, there were a lot of questions from the doctors about what the patients could get from the dogs, but the dogs can also get things from patients like antimicrobial resistance. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you've had any problems like that that have arisen? We have not had any problems with that. With our policy, which was developed with our infection control um, group, who um, our infection control chair who helped write the Shea paper that came out um, about infection control and our patients before they, they, their hands are sanitized before and after they interact with the dogs. The dogs are based within 24 hours of when they come in. If we have a request, a special request from a physician to visit a compromised patient, the dog will come, <coughs> excuse me, come in and that's the first person they see before they see any other patient so that we're not carrying anything. So we, we haven't had any problem with that, and we are very, very hopeful that we don't. Um, our worst, I guess, scare was when one of our dog teams who had visited called us and said, I was just there yesterday, and my dog has ringworm. Just found out today that he says, I think he has ringworm. So we immediately called infection control. We know exactly where the dog was. We know exactly who was visited. But before he, they could even start contacting those patients, the gentleman called back. He said, I just went to my vet, and it's not ringworm. It was an uh, insect bite. But we, we, we had the policy in place. We knew exactly what to do. Infection control says, don't worry about it. Just tell us where they were, what time they were, when the patients, and they take over from there. So thankfully, we didn't have to um, take any more 
you know, severe measures from that, but that certainly would have been the dog could have been transmitting something. But we've had dogs there um, since probably the mid-90s and have had zero adverse events. And I think that's a credit to how strict our policies are and our wonderful, <coughs> excuse me, our wonderful volunteers who really take it seriously as well. Hello. Thank you for your presentation. Okay, where are you? Who's I'm talking? here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to know, is there any, any welfare policy for the therapy dog? Like, uh, for example, how many days they work for a week or each day the in intensity? Because I saw there are 122 students want to join the college program, so I'm curious and in the any the welfare policy for the working hours of the yes. dogs please yes excellent question welfare is extremely important the dogs visit for a maximum of two hours but only if they're experienced have been there uh, visiting for at least six months they have to have a break after an hour anytime the dog shows any sign of being tired they get a break they leave the, um, they're constantly, we're constantly reminding our handlers, the owners, to be cognizant of their dogs, to know when they show any signs of stress, and to respect that and leave. And I think it's extremely important. Now, the facility dogs are trained to be there for longer periods of time, so very different um, than the therapy dog. But the therapy dogs, generally, they're there an hour, uh, two hours max, but with a break in the middle. And we do have to remind some of our volunteers because it's so rewarding for them to be seeing the, the change in patients. We have to remind them, and we know they have to clock in and clock out. So we, we examine those. We follow those. And if we see someone there that's starting to spend too much time, we immediately contact them and remind them they can't do that. And if they can't abide by the rules, they can't be a part of the program. Good question. Thank you. Hi, I live and work with dogs in rural Victoria and we notice quite substantial difference in attitude to pets and animals, um, particularly with them being indoors. Has your research compared this variable? With the, I'm sorry, with mating dogs? Sorry, with uh, attitudes by the humans uh, in rural areas? Ah. Um, we have not. That's not an area that we've been doing research. Some of our volunteers are from rural areas. We've got some dogs that are running around on the farm, but then they have to be bathed and brought in. And I'm, Lily, I'm thinking, comes to mind, who's a Labrador who lives on a big farm and is out running around with the horses and everything else. But then, you know, but this is a volunteer who, who is, has had the therapy dog trained to bring it in. But we, we haven't seen, and our patient population includes individuals from rural areas because we're a large regional, we're a level one trauma center. And we haven't seen that. We have very few people who don't want to visit with the dog. But if they do, we certainly respect that and we would not visit that individual. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much, Dr. Barker, for your talk. I really appreciate it. I think your program is amazing. Um, from my understanding, a lot of the dog handler teams probably repeatedly go to the hospitals and to the different um, locations that they're, they're involved in. So my question, um, I know you didn't speak to the longitudinal effects of these programs, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit um, about whether or not you, what your thoughts are around some perhaps maybe a transition in terms of the impact of no novelty of these programs 
to, towards um, perhaps the impact of an attachment bond that was created between the animals and the, the patients and how, how we kind of grapple with that. Yes, and the majority of our patients aren't there that long. Um, we have an average length of stay, you know, which they're always trying to get down, get it lower, of course, um, of about seven days. And so there's the, the dogs that are visiting, some of them, and someone asked this question as well, some of them visit once a month, some of them visit once a week, some of them visit twice a week, but usually not more frequently than that. And so a lot of them are only seeing a dog once, and then they'll see a different dog. Um, the case on our chemo unit, they do see that dog over time. And the kids do get attached to the dogs. And they'll, um, they, they collect, uh, some of them like to see multiple dogs because they have each of the dog teams, they have these dog trading cards. And kids and even the staff like to collect as many cards as they can. So it really varies in terms of, for our pediatric oncology clinic, we have more strict criteria for those dogs, and so we have a, a more limited number who go there, and the kids do know the, the dogs. When I was with, um, and also some of our other areas, when I was going, following one of our teams, we had a visitor, following one of our teams in the emergency room on a busy day, the staff, Bob's here, Bob is the dog, Bob's here, Bob's here, and the staff started coming out. So the staff get used to a certain dog and certainly you know, get attached to it. Longitudinally-wise, what happens to that? We haven't had the case where a dog was visiting and died or a dog was visiting and got sick to know if there's any um, issues in terms of what the patients deal with. We just haven't experienced that. And part of it is because of we have now almost uh, 100 dogs teams, and so they're seeing various dogs throughout. To be a good study, do that longitudinal. Uh, so, Sandy, I was curious about the facility dogs. This is a category that I am not at all familiar with. I haven't even heard of it. Um, of course, I've heard about dogs in facilities, mm -hmm. but I haven't heard about dogs trained specifically to be facility dogs. I have a couple of questions. Who do these dogs belong to? How is this, being a facility dog, how is that different from if I'm, a, if I'm a therapist working in a facility and I take my dog to the facility, and you mentioned that these dogs are trained by CCI, yes. Canine Companions for Independence. Are they trained specifically to be facility dogs, yes. or are they dogs that failed the um, service no. dog program? These are not failures. <laughs> we don't have failures. These are all winners. Um, they are trained to be facility dogs. Um, Mejia, the one you saw um, with Tess, uh, the advanced nurse clinician, she's been with us probably actively for seven years, and she's retiring because of her age, but she's still a great therapist. So she's now coming as a therapy dog. So she only interacts with patients for an hour whereas before she was there all day, but she was trained to do tasks specific for that psychiatric population and with tests. So she was matched, like service dogs are, matched with the handler, but Tess does, it's kind of who owns what, and CCI would be the better person to ask about that, but I know that since she's retired from that, Tess still has her. So I'm assuming it's hers. It'd be awfully hard to give up. But they are specifically trained, not as service dogs, but as facility dogs. And I think it is a newer concept. Um, 
I've, I'm interested in the program because, uh, and the attitudes of the medical professionals who are typically dismissive and or suspicious of these programs. Yeah. So how have, how have those changed since you started in 2001? It, and it's, it's been a journey, and you're exactly right. I remember when I had HI, went into the elevator early on, and a physician said to me, what is this, take your dog to work day? And I thought, you know, but I thought, teachable moment. And so I had those two minutes in that elevator to tell him about the certification. At that time, it was certification. Now it's registration, the training, and the data. They listen to data. So when you tell them, you know, we just did the study here with some of your colleagues and found their cortisol went down after five minutes. By the end of that ride, he said, well, gee, I wonder if it help in my clinic. So a lot of it has to do with education. A lot of it is the data, seeing the data. And our um, university does a really good job of publicizing our findings, and so they were seeing this. And then when you have the hospital CEO and the hospital medical director on board, and you have some of the chairs getting on board. Now again, this has been over a long period of time, but it was primarily driven by not only the education about the research findings we had, but them seeing their own patients respond. We had one physician who happened to come in. He was going to adjust a, a child who was in traction. And the um, therapy dog handler said, you want me to leave? And he said, no, no, you can stay. And when he finished, he said, you need to come with me all the time because this kid is usually screaming and fighting me and was totally calm. So I think when they see some of the interactions, um, that that has made a difference as, as well. But it has been a journey. It wasn't you know, always that way. And it was starting out with getting who are the major stakeholders who need to be involved and knowing in an academic medical center, it's got to be research that's going to do it. We just finished a study, um, the chair of our urology department. He saw me in the hall one day and he says, you know, his wife happens to adore her dog and is a now a member of our therapy dog team. He says, I wonder if the dogs would help our patients before cystoscopy because it's pretty anxiety produ producing, particularly for our male patients. So we said, sure, let's take a look at that. And so we did a little randomized control study and we're analyzing the data now. So part of it has to do with just their seeing some of the results themselves and hearing about it, but it has been a, a journey. Um, my only question was, um, I, um, the dogs at work, uh, have they been, um, you know, looking at how stressed the dogs who go to work with their owners are, um, because they're not trained for anything in particular, um, and whether the dogs are having as much fun as the people? Well, interesting, and no, we did not look at that in that study, just observing. I mean, you saw the picture of the little chihuahua. That was in the call center had his dog bed right there on the counter. Um, when, when we first, Randy and I first went into the, um, the company, there was a, uh, I think it was a poodle that was sitting by the sign-in book, lying there. You, you didn't see anything visible. Most of them had tails wagging. And interestingly that um, people who didn't have, employees who didn't have dogs, we saw them come by and ask their colleague, can I take the dog out for a break? Which, I mean, how much more healthy is it walking a dog on your break than sitting in a, you know, lounge or something? So we saw a lot of interaction. The lady with the mail cart had her dog with her in the mail cart. Dogs seemed to be, you know, perfectly fine. 
but we didn't specifically look at stress in those dogs. That wasn't the uh, focus of the study. Good question, though. We need to be concerned about the welfare. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sandra, for your talk and questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.